So today we have our second episode. We do. And um, welcome back, listeners. Hopefully somebody is coming back. And um, today we have another set of exciting topics. And the first topic that we have is actually... I don't use the iPad enough. Yeah. Which is a problem. Um, but when I use the iPad, I like to use the pencil as well if I can, if I can use it. But I don't use the iPad enough. I'm using the iPad a lot, but mostly for things that don't require a pencil. So I think of all the Apple things I bought, the pencil is really the mo the least used thing I have for all the Apple things I ever bought. I have it and I try to bring it with me, but I rarely, rarely, rarely use it, if at all. Okay, so for me, really the problem is that I don't use the iPad and not so much that I don't use the pencil because if I use the iPad I use the pencil what do you and Apple should also like totally like bring out a new pencil that supports like the the force touch or at least like the 3D touch or do more with that because it's totally crazy that it like does all the force touching when drawing um, but then doesn't allow any force touch actions uh, oh. anywhere else I didn't even know that I, I think at be. some point last year in in iOS 10 they had this feature where you could at least like use the force touch to like close all notifications uh, in, in some beta one, and then mm -hmm. they removed it again. <laughs> but you couldn't use it with a pen, right? It was That was the normal force touch, but not the pen force touch that we were talking about. I think it was the pen. Okay. Like, it, it had to be because okay. the iPad doesn't have a, uh, have a screen that registers force Oh, you're right. Yeah, touch. you're right. You're right. <laughs> Stupid me, right? Um, what are you using your iPad for? Sometimes I use it for mail. Um, I use it for notes also when I want to draw something. So when I'm talking uh, or thinking about some architecture, for example, I like to, to use the, the pencil. I used to, I used to actually use like the iPad for tweetbot and like, uh, reading stuff and just had that on the side of my, my computer. Um, but now I don't anymore because I don't like the, the client, the, the Twitter client on, uh, on iOS. And I just use it on the Mac, and I don't really use the, the iPad anymore. I'm mostly reading books or, or reading um, articles via Instapaper or watching movies, or I'm going through my doc right now to see if there's anything else that I'm doing. But YouTube, I guess, is also movies. So, yeah, I'm watching movies and reading books is what I have the iPad for. I installed a couple of games, but I don't really use them. I also installed a couple of music apps, but I found that I also don't like that much. Like, it's not... I like to do it on the Mac way more. I'm much more a Mac guy, I have to admit. For games, I guess I um, I like consoles more um, or the Mac. And for productivity, also the Mac. And for me, the iPad is just a consumption device. And I, I don't have a need for a pen there. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that you say, like, you use it for books. And that's actually something where I, or, or as well as, as movies, something where I would definitely, like, go for either the Mac or an iPhone. Because... Like reading books to me, like if I like I read books in bed and then I use an iPad, like an iPhone because an iPad is too big for me. I mean, I can just read it fine on an, on an iPhone, uh, and I really much more like favor the the small iPhone uh, compared to to the larger iPad. Um, but I'm also getting ridiculed for reading it like a scroll like a scroll book um, instead of an actual book where you turn the pages. So. Maybe it's me. I, I like the scrollable book, but I, I still prefer the iPad a lot more when reading a book in bed. I, I, to me, it feels like the I, 
iPhone is just too small. I, I don't have a, a Plus device, but um, it's just too small for me. I mean, you also don't have a Plus device. We both have the iPhone X, but um, it, it, that's for me, it's too small. And for movies, I mostly do it on the iPad because a lot of movies I watch when I'm on the treadmill in the gym. or And, and then it makes sense because I can't put my Mac there. That's actually interesting because when I was, was still using the uh, spinning bike we had at home, uh, I also used to use my iPad and put it on there and, and watch some, some movies. Uh, then it then it's definitely more useful. But when I'm in the train or and I don't watch that many movies like on a handheld device, but when I'm in the train, I mean I can also just use my iPhone and keep it closer to my eyes and I mean, I, I, in the end it's the same thing yeah probably I, but i don't know i tried that and it's just not my thing I, it's weird i um i prefer the ipad a lot for that yeah. um, as well as for the iphone by the way when reading uh i used to have a uh the plus iphone um but in the end the screen on the iphone 10 of course is bigger than the plus so in the end you still have like a plus device screen for the book so that shouldn't change but i can still like get it when you want to use an ipad i just don't i don't like it yeah i mean yeah i, I get i get that it's and i also don't use it for much it's I, I like having it but yeah when we created the website we realized quickly that um doing the all the html by hand is not the optimal solution because you have a lot of repetitions and then you make errors. So everybody, we, everybody uses a static site generator usually for that or something like WordPress. And uh, we wanted certainly to have a static site generator, but since we are a Swift podcast, kind of, we thought, well, why not use a Swift static site generator? And uh, then we wondered why not just use a very simple one that is just one Swift script. Instead of having something that has to be compiled and installed, we could basically just add the Swift script to the code base. And whenever you check out the code base, you just run the Swift script and it will generate the um, static site. And so that's what we aimed for. And we ran into a lot of interesting issues because I have to admit, even though I do a lot of Swift, I hardly do any Swift scripting, like actual scripting just like Python or Ruby scripting. Uh, what I would do usually is create a Swift package management project and then create a binary. But actually, Swift scripting I do far less often. And thus, it was interesting for me just how much more difficult it is. So um, when you usually do scripting bus, how do you do it? Like when you have to script something on the command line? So it totally depends on, on the project and the requirements. Um, but I've been working a lot with Ruby. And to me, Ruby is this, this awesome, let's just dive into something uh, and start experimenting and run it easily from the command line. You have the IRB, the interactive Ruby, uh, on, the, on the command line where you can easily um, check what you're doing and, and what, what things are evaluating to. I mean, it's comparable to uh, the REPL on uh, what we have with Swift. And... To me, that's just this like easy way to get into scripting. Uh, you don't have the issues that you have in Swift uh, when you start to do networking, where you have asynchronous uh, requests in Swift, which are really, really nice when you develop an app, but aren't as uh, welcome when you're actually working on a script. Uh, so at that point, I, I mostly just use Ruby. Um, I've worked with Python. I've worked a bit with Swift scripting. Um, I would like to, like in bigger projects, I would like to do something like Swift, 
um, not only because I'm more or like are familiar with Swift on a different level compared to Ruby, um, but Swift obviously offers a lot of safety and a lot of type checking that Ruby cannot offer. Um, and that's also where I struggle with Ruby is where do we where do you actually want to do this type checking manually and where, where does it make sense to, to do so and where not? Um, so I mostly gravitate towards Ruby, um, but in a bigger project, I would, would like to, to experiment with Swift. And I really like what you, what you did with, uh, with Masse, um, which is the name of the, the tool. Uh, and it's just really simple. It's just one file. It's Swift. Uh, it's really fun to, to actually change and, and tinker with uh, compared to compared to where Ruby where you have to like think about hey if I add something should I type check this or should I uh, do some error handling here where in, in Swift that feels like much more native and much more uh, yeah feels more for more normal uh, to do that yes for the for the tool so um, we will add a link to the show notes and basically the tool as I explained generates some HTML static site and the name of the tool is Masse, which means most awful static site engine because uh, it's not really, when you look into it, it's not a beautiful code base. It, I hacked it, we hacked it together in a way so that it goes below 400 lines of code and that in order to generate a static site with, with its own built-in template language that does loops and so on. So if, you, if you're into that, if you're interested in how this would work, um, feel free to have a look. Um, I usually, so for me, the go-to tool for scripting is Python. I started using Python in 2003, so it's like 15 years of usage, usage now, and I don't really have to think about it. Like when I want to write a script, I open Vim and I start typing. I don't have any plugins that, um, that do auto-completion or anything for Python because I don't need that. It's after so many years, um, the, the necessary, the most necessary things for creating a script, I just know them by hand. So I just start typing and it, it's really easy. Um, and then I can quickly iterate and then do a couple of um, incarnations of the script. And usually it fails a couple of times because they have an error here and an error there. And at some point it works. Um, and so the comparison to Swift was striking. Like it was, first of all, I can't just, open Vim and start typing because even though I've been doing Swift for a couple of years now, it's still not something I can just type without any annotations, uh, without any autocompletion. That's also, I think, because I'm using it with autocompletions all the, all the time. So um, I know the beginnings of all the methods, but I don't know the complete name. And so I start typing and then I'm like, oh, wait, how does this even end? Because I get no completion window that tells me this is what it looks like. And this, these are the names of the parameters because they are all completed for me. Uh, and that in the beginning, when, when we started writing on the script, we were like, huh, the, what's the best way to do that? Because you can't just create a Swift, a file.swift, open it in Xcode, start typing and um, get completions. That doesn't work. So what I did was I created a playground and put it into the playground. And basically in the playground, uh, it was possible to just work on this one Swift file without having any dependencies, without having to use the package manager, um, because it sh the, the idea was to have something that has no dependencies except for foundation in order to to generate the site. And it works fine if you create it in a playground, but um, you can't then, if it 
if you have a script, you usually want to execute it on the command line and get the parameters and stuff, and that doesn't really work well with the playground. So you need a way to to kind of um, mock this, and um, we have this in the project. So if you're interested in that, you can have a look. Um, what was the most surprising thing for you, Buzz? I think that was one of the most surprising things. Like I looked at the at what you what you written, and I was like, hey, how can I, like, how can I go through this and, and review this. And I was like, okay, let's just re like add some header documentation. Um, so I opened the project and I wanted to add header documentation, which obviously works fine. You don't need a compiler for that. But then you option click on a function to actually see what the header documentation you just added looks like. And it didn't work. It just said like no, no overview available or no, no header docs available or whatever it said. And I was like, does this use the compiler or does it, does it do anything like that we can't do in a single file? And then I had the same, uh, same idea as you where I thought, Hey, let's open this in a playground because in a playground, I know that it works and it turned out that it did. Um, so I also figured out that, Hey, this is weird that you have this, this Swift file without any, uh, auto completion, without any help. Um, I mean, you do have some key light, like keyword coloring, um, but that's basically it. Uh, so that's what I did. I opened the file, pretty quickly posted it, uh, pasted it in a playground and worked there and then just copied it over when I wanted to run the actual script. Um, then there is another thing you touched on is the, the template language. What is that called and, and what does it look like? BS, yeah, yeah, Benedict's awful configuration format. That yeah. was the name, yeah. I, I have to say, I came up with this while I was on a train, and there was no internet connection on the train. So, and it's a very, very simple idea. It's basically just a key value language. And I could have used YAML or um, a couple of other formats, but then again, it was supposed to be depend dependency free because in a simple Swift script, you cannot use any dependencies except for what Apple offers you already. And so there was no way to just add a YAML or a TOML parser to it. So it had to be something simple that could be implemented in as little code as possible. So that's why it's also a awful configuration format. And let's hope, I mean, the names will probably stay, but let's hope that <laughs> Both the the format as well as the the uh, static side generator won't stay awful. Yeah, let, let's hope that it can be improved in a way without gaining dependencies. And maybe the Swift compiler will at some point gain the possibility to to have some more dependencies there. Um, what you can do currently is there's a tool by John Sandel. It's called Marathon, and what that does is you write your script and then. In your script, you can um, define your dependencies in, in comments, sort of. And then you basically, instead of executing the script right away, you execute it with the Marathon tool, which is a tool written in Swift by John Sardell, and that will take care of the dependencies and then inject them into your script, basically compile it and run the script. So this is a mix of the best of both ways. Instead of just having the script, you have a um, wrapper, the, the Marathon tool that takes care of your script, and you can even tell Marathon to um, generate a an Xcode project for you, and then basically you can create it, uh, you can edit it properly in Xcode without completion and so on, uh, and still run it on the command line with Marathon. So that's a much the much nicer way, and that's, that would have been the saner way also for what we are doing, but um, sometimes you want a challenge. Yeah, and in this case, looking at the, uh, the tool, like it's not that big. Um, like you said, we don't have any dependencies, which also feels at least to me, it feels really nice. Like you don't have any dependencies, you don't have anything 
to worry about with those dependencies and it's really easy to set up for anyone and marathon is is a really nice tool um especially i also really like the the actual project gener- that it generates so that you can work on it um but in the end it also feels nice to not have any dependencies also not any dependencies like like marathon and and also work from there and uh, and get a tool up and running apparently in a few hours while while running on a train without any internet um but that also caused some like challenges because you didn't have any internet so you couldn't look anything up uh can you tell a bit more about that yeah so um the the main issue really i ran into was that so you already touched this briefly that when you use ruby or when i use python um as a language for scripting they have a lot of batteries included functionality in the standard library like um, synchronous networking for example um, that is very simple and usually just one line of code and one thing i ran into because we have our own very awful um, templating language when you parse a template you do a lot of string processing and um, the string processing in swift is much better than the string processing in python because it takes care about unicode and it makes sure that everything is safe and that you don't shoot yourself in the foot and it even makes sure that um, it it's kind of difficult for you to um, perform operations that um, are expensive in terms of performance so that's already cool however it is also kind of robust and some things are actually unnecessarily complicated and if you if you do a lot of string processing things that in python would just be one line of code you need four lines of code for example especially when it comes down to indexes um just today i i tweeted something that was um that i also used in this project where um when you want to get a substring out of a string with a start and an end and those are actually integers and you and not a range or an ns range but just ins it's unnecessarily complicated and the reason for that is it, it makes sense is that um Traditionally, when you do index integer-based indexing, you would do it by byte, and in Swift that doesn't really work because you could end up between the code points of a um, of one character, and then it wouldn't know what to do. Um, but there's the alternative way in Swift, and that is you have the index for the string, and then you can take the start index and offset it by a certain amount of integer integers and that's basically what what we are doing there so we are u- using just the int to to begin from the start index and advance forward uh, in a and that is a subscript extension to swift that makes it much easier and um for the for the static side generator i added a lot of extensions to string to make it kind of bearable to do all this string processing um because the standard library is a bit verbose in this respect i mean what do you think where that is um i know that that the the swift team has been working on string uh, for like the last few years actually um where they were looking at the whole like surface area of the api which is really really big actually um and also looking at hey how can we keep it safe because i think that's like one of the main points of of the especially the string apis in swift uh, looking at like Unicode, um, but in the end, like it should also be an API that is actually usable, and especially with a string API that's used like all over the place in in any project, uh, that becomes like increasingly uh, important. And that's why I was also confused that there are some uh, some quirky APIs that are hard to use, uh, especially with integers. 
Um, so we looked into this where if you try to get a substring from a string with integers, um, this, the standard like subscripting doesn't work. And it actually gives you a warning or an error and it redirects you to the documentation that then explains why integers are maybe not the best way to uh, do string processing. The weird thing is, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that even the Swift team has talked about uh, changing back the string.index to actually, actually use integers, um, because that's in the end most of the time what people end up using, and most of the time also what does the correct thing. Um, so it's interesting to see because in, in at first like using the subscript it like it exists like it's deprecated it that's what the documentation tells you um, or the error tells you um, but then it doesn't work and the workarounds are for both but feel like you're still ending up with like using integers regardless um, so I'm wondering what the reason behind that is and, and where they got stuck and, and what we can see in the future. But I'm, I'm sure that the, the Swift team is interested in, in looking into this. Um, and this is something where we can expect uh, improvements in the future. Yeah, I feel like the string processing is such a important part of actual day-to-day -day programming. Um, lots of programming languages uh, invest heavily into this to make sure that uh, it of there are uh, lots of different functions that, that um, give you different ways of doing something. And uh, one thing you have to keep in mind is always the performance of the operation. And I feel like um, it's better to have a function that clearly explains to you the performance than not having the function and then the developer just does something but is unaware of the performance havoc he's actually causing because he's doing something that's really bad um, that has a bad performance but he doesn't know about it so it's better the function kind of if there's a way to see okay this is the documentation for swift already tells you usually the performance this is great uh, but since the, we, we i think there could be a lot more functions on string in swift um and if we would have these, then instead of doing something ourselves and maybe implementing a badly performance, badly performant version, we actually would see, okay, I can use this, this version. Oh, it is, it has a difficult performance. Okay. Now that I know of, maybe I can try to do it in a different way that is of high performance. Or another option would be the compiler would point it out. But, um, I feel it's better to have more functions. Um, in order to inform the developer of the performance characteristics, because they're not always obvious when you, work with strings. Yeah, and I feel like that's where um, we're all struggling a bit, is where we where we draw the line in the string APIs. Like, where do we offer this flexibility and offer these extra uh, functions um, versus keeping the API lean um, and making it actually easy to, with auto-completion, if you have it, of course, uh, see uh, what your options are. Yeah, and one thing is that the more functions you add, obviously, the more baggage you have that in the future you have to lug around um, and can, can't easily um, deprecate. So you maybe, maybe you add a couple of functions now, and in the future you, you realize, now they are not used that much, and then you always have to move them forward. And if you do changes, you have to, you have to always consider those um, so that makes it unwieldy at some point. So that's also another reason why it, you have to make sure that you only add what's necessary and not just add a lot of stuff just because. And what you touched upon with the performance of a function is also really interesting. There was a uh, there was a talk by Dave Abrahams at WWC, 
um, where he talked about algorithms. And one thing he also uh, talked about is, hey, every algorithm like, should have its documentation um, with a complexity. And at any point where you, as a developer, would write another algorithm, which you probably should because they're awesome and they can help you prevent duplication and prevent bugs in, in many, uh, many parts of your, your code base, but really take a look at the complexity there and also document it um, so that everybody, like on every layer of your, your algorithms, you're aware of the complexity and their, their big O notation and, and how performant they are. I totally agree. Um, one, one thing there is that um, oftentimes I think people don't really, really look at the documentation for all the methods. So something that I would like even more is if Xcode would make the method, let's say, bold, if it has a bad complexity, and even bolder if it has a really bad complexity. So when you look through your code base, you can immediately see just by observing the boldness of the font uh, how bad the method is that you're currently calling. That would actually be a really interesting project to take a look at, uh, like to what extent that is possible to do that. Hmm. Um, and but there there is something where you can at least see like how long it takes to compile a certain body, like a certain function. Um, so there is a, I think there is a, uh, a flag to enable this warning uh, on, on functions. Um, and then you can actually see like, hey, if it takes a long while to compile this, which you can often see if you have a long function that does a lot of uh, string formatting or string concatenation or whatever, then you can see that those are, uh, are not as performant, at least at compile time. Yeah, I, I think we are using something in the Xing app he, here for our, our employer, um, where basically when you compile the project the first time, we generate a um, relative compile time value for your specific machine. And then when uh, that is compared to a value hosted in the repository, and then when uh, you write a new function that is actually compared to this value to make sure that the function that you implement implemented doesn't take forever to compile in order to keep the compile times kind of low. I'm actually still in awe that we wrote this whole tool that actually like makes this like, like builds this baseline built based on your machine uh, to do this. And I think the reason we did this is uh, because we use uh, treat warnings as errors, where we actually don't allow any warnings, which is on the one hand really nice, and on the other hand, it it's not as great um, because especially during trying to develop something and you have a, a variable sticking around that is unused, that will be a warning as an error and you won't be able to build the app to, to actually test what you're, you're working on. Um, but in the end, like that was the reason I think why we had to make this baseline and actually don't, uh, don't make it so that we have too many uh, warnings there that would turn into errors that would turn into to build errors. Yeah. I'm, I have to admit, I'm, I'm really happy with how we have it um, with that implementation. I had a couple of times, I had something written something and then I ran, had this error and I was like, okay, maybe I should split this up into and make it uh, more bearable for the compiler and a couple of type annotations, for example. And also with newer Swift versions, you have that problem less and less. Yeah, but you can also, like oftentimes you, like when you get that warning and you look at the function, you can see that there's something wrong or you can see that you're doing something really expensive. Yeah. Uh, and oftentimes you can, you can fix that. So in uh, totally um, other news, I'm considering buying a switch. And then what? So um, I, I have still have an Xbox and uh, I'm not using it. And so I decided when I 
sell it then um i and i had a bit of money i can get a switch and the, i have a couple of reasons for that the first one is i can take it on vacations so when i'm on vacation in the plane for example i can i used to bring my ipad to play games but we talked about the ipad earlier and um i, I don't like playing games on the ipad i have to admit it's i like to have an actual joypad like control and just the touch screen doesn't it doesn't work for me and um so then i would have something i can play on the plane and i also um want every two weeks here at Xing we have a code freeze where um where we play mario kart on a gamecube and i would bring my switch and then we could play the newest version of mario kart instead of playing the old version of mario kart on the gamecube which is which has which is great gameplay but terrible graphics um and we've played it a couple of times now so maybe it's nice it's time for a new Mario Kart and I have uh, some friends that I meet with usually every two weeks also and we used to watch a TV series together so every week a different episode but that it, it's it, it's become kind of tricky because um, one guy is always on vacation or not there so it's trickier to meet up so we decided let's just play video games and um, I had set up an old iMac with um, with an emulator and we played a Nintendo 64 Mario Kart, um, but the controls were difficult because I had a, a a joypad from a PlayStation and a cheap USB gamepad and so on. So that was kind of tricky. And playing in an emulator has its own limitations and it's quirky and the graphics were awful. Um, so that was bad. And I thought maybe also playing with them Mario Kart would be great. And the biggest advantage, um, when you watch a TV series together, you don't talk, but when you play a game, you can actually talk about what you're doing and stuff and play at the same time. So to me, it feels like these are a lot of reasons that for me I should uh, buy a Switch and I will probably only buy the Switch and then Zelda and Mario Kart and nothing else. But that's the that's the idea because I used to be a huge gamer in the past, but I'm not anymore. Are you a gamer? I'm not really a gamer. Uh, I don't really do any games. Although it's really funny that recently I also installed a Nintendo 64 emulator. Um, and what I do watch quite a bit is uh, um, A Link to the Past Zelda. And it's a game from 1991 or so. Yeah, I think it was released on the on the Super on the, Nintendo. On the Super Nintendo, um, and it was actually my first game on the Game Boy. So I got a Game Boy SP, um, and I had this this game on there. And so what I've been watching recently is, is this uh, game mode called uh, Link to the Past Randomizer, where actually every <laughs> like the whole game is randomized, um, and it, it becomes a puzzle where you have to find out like, hey, how like with these items, how can I like what dungeons can I go to, and and how can I can I finish the game? Um, and there's been this huge community on Twitch actually where you have these huge uh, tournaments with this with this game has been a lot of fun to watch and i was like hey i want to try this out as well because i i mean i still like know how the game works and um then i actually uh, got the game from uh that i had still had at home and i tried it on a on a nintendo ds but it doesn't really work like you can't speed run you can't go fast and it's quirky and uh, for the speedrun, you need like the original Japanese uh, 1.0, which has some some other interesting uh, mechanics. Uh, so I ended up like installing this this emulator and and played a few of those games, and it was a lot of fun actually. So 
I'm, I'm a huge fan of Link to the Past. It was the, the first, no, it was the second Zelda I played. On I played the one on the original Nintendo Entertainment System, but that one, and now there comes a very, very sad story. Um, I had that one, the, the original Golden Cartridge, and I was almost in the last dungeon. So I had played the game for a couple of months because I was young. I was like, I don't know, seven years old. And um, I had almost reached the last dungeon. And then I was reading this magazine. I think it was Nintendo Power. It was like, a, I, I don't remember the name, but it was the official magazine from Nintendo that uh, you could be part of the Nintendo Club and you got this magazine. And they had a, a cheat where when you created a new player with a certain name, then that player would have a lot of hearts, something like that. I don't know. And so I wanted to try that cheat. And so I created this new player and it didn't work. And I thought, huh, no. You have to understand I was stupid. So I tried, I thought mm, maybe I have to delete the second player and then do it there. And then I did that. And it also didn't work. And then somehow I deleted the first player, which was my player that had almost finished the game. And it also didn't work. And then I realized what I had done. And then I called the hotline because I was young. I thought they could maybe, you know, undo it. And they just told me, you oh, know, that's sad, but that's lost. <laughs> and then I cried a lot. And then I didn't touch the game at all. I, I put it into a locker and I didn't touch it at all and until I bought the new game for the Super Nintendo many years later and then started playing that and that I loved and I played until the end I, I played it through a couple of times but I will never forget this broken heart <laughs> when I deleted my own save game almost shortly before finishing the game I mean, it's a great learning experience and a great thing too <laughs> well maybe it's that's one of the reasons why I don't delete stuff it, no, this is going deep, but I don't delete, I don't delete stuff. I have everything backed up. That's a good advice. <laughs> I should follow that as well. I remember also at some point where I had a had an assignment and I had some issues with iCloud syncing and I called with Apple and they were like, yeah, just disable syncing and then enable it again and it will be fine. And then, I mean, it worked, just the file was gone. Hmm. Yeah, we all have those experiences, I think. Yeah, I guess, yeah. It, it always depends on how much time you spend on these files, right? It's when it's a day or a couple of days, it's already really bad. But when it's month, yeah, that yeah. doesn't help the cause. <laughs> no, it makes it even less fun. Exactly. In uh, link to the past, did you do the thing with the chickens? Uh, yeah, where you can, yeah, you you can do that, but obviously in a speed run you don't. <laughs> um, no time for chickens in a no speed run. No time for chickens. Um, but I, I, like, I think as a kid, I like got around to, Hey, these chickens are not happy when you punch them. And when you punch them like 10 times, <laughs> I curse you. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. Such a nice idea. Yeah. All right. I okay. think that about sums up our second episode chickens. Um, thank you for listening and we hope to see you back the next time. And if you have any feedback, you can tweet us at Contravariance and um, we are glad to get any feedback for future episodes if you have any tips or advice. 